to say that I love Hagerstown Church and that I love to hear these saints sing is an understatement. I need to be reminded of these truths, and I know that you do too. And so on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, we gather and we catechize one another. We remind one another of these glorious truths. And I pray that what we just sang is the desire of your heart. That Christ we would proclaim, the name that is above all name, all names. And that we would do that to the ends of the earth and to the end of our lives. I want to invite you to have a seat this morning and as you do, let me say this. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And at this time, I want to dismiss, invite our three to five-year-olds that are uh, it's going to be attending Hubtown Kids Blue Station this morning to go ahead and head back uh, to the check-in station here to my right, uh, likely your left. Um, and so parents, you'll, you'll see there that the check-in station, so be sure to check your children in, make sure they're, they have the, the sticker on their back, and then that they are uh, in attendance with the leader and they're able to be taken upstairs. If you haven't had a chance to go up and check out that uh, station, too bad, you lost your chance, because that station is secure and uh, you can't go snooping around, but do check it out on, uh, on Facebook. There's some pictures up there. It's pretty exciting what God's doing up there. Uh, as well as there's a nursing mother's room or a relief room. If you need a, a break with a crying child, you're welcome to take that room um, as well. The, the services will be streaming in there in addition to uh, live down here. Uh, and so this morning, uh, our precious kiddos will be learning this truth, and it is that God is gracious, that God is gracious. The, God's grace is unmerited, divine favor. It's a favor uh, from which comes many gifts. So even in humanity's fallen state, God freely grants to his creatures good things that they do not deserve. And it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, the greatest of these good gifts is Jesus Christ. So there's a distinctive marker in Christianity, one that sets us apart from all other religions. And I love what Jay Gresham Machen noted about that and how he, how he really coined that there. He said, this, the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. So in creation, his creation, in his covenants, in his promises, in his word, in his work, all of these things spring from his grace. And again, chief among them is that he gives us himself. And that's what we're celebrating here this morning as Christians. And so parents, I want to encourage you, as, as we uh, think about our children being up in Hubtown Kids or just church member, if you're thinking about you know, what's taking place up there, know this, that you can be involved in the life of the, of the children in this church by celebrating and reminding them what God is teaching them this morning specifically, that he is indeed gracious. And there's tools in the loop, so be sure to check that out if you're looking for uh, tools that you can use in family worship. There's also tools that you can use to be connected with what God is doing and teaching upstairs. And uh, know this, parents, it is your responsibility to raise your children to know and love Jesus. And we are coming alongside of you, a people helping parents, if you will. We want to assist you in doing that. And so we pray to that end, and we serve to that end as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth that you are gracious. In light of Psalm 67 this morning, we pray and we ask that according to the grace that you have promised, 
according, according to the grace that we have experienced, we pray that you would bless us even more and even this morning. Father, we pray that you would make your face shine upon us as we gather. Father, we pray that as we sing songs this morning, that the different parts and intonations and different voices would come together in a unified praise, making much of you, the one who is gracious. Father, we pray that you would be here with us this morning through your word as it's preached, through your spirit as he leads, as he convicts, as he comforts. Father, we pray that your saving power would be realized here this morning and that there is somebody that's far from you still living in their sin, that they would turn from that this morning, that they would repent and run to the God who is indeed gracious, full of mercy and loving kindness. And God, we don't just ask that as we typically do for our church, but we think of those around us. Father, we think of our neighbors, specifically this morning, Virginia Avenue Baptist Church. Father, we pray for those dear brothers and sisters as they gather around your word this morning, that you would be gracious to them. Father, in their pain, in their struggles, in their difficulties, and even in their joy, that you would shower them with grace this morning from your word. Father, we pray that those that gather there, just as those who gather here, that your face would shine on them. And God, we think of the other side of the globe. This morning, we think of our dear brother and sister and their family serving in Thailand. God, we thank you that you've called them, as we sang this morning, to go, to share the good news of the gospel. God, it is our prayer this morning, along with Psalm 67, that the peoples of Thailand would praise you. God, would you allow that to take place? According to the work that you're doing through our brother and sister there, to the many believers that are gathered even today, making much of you through their testimony, explicitly with the gospel of Jesus Christ, would they call those who are far from you to repentance and would they not receive the mercy and grace that flows from you? Father, this is our prayer Father, we think of the many things that we're hiring to do as a body. We think of Hubtown Kids and the equipping hour. Father, as we consider elder candidacies, we lay these things before you and we pray your blessings on them. And now as we turn to your word that you have given to us this morning, would your people be helped? Would hearts that are hardened toward you, would they be softened? Father, the one that is strained, would they not come back into the fold? And through all these things, we pray that you would glorify yourself. This is our prayer, and this is our hope, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark 9 is where we are this morning. Last week, we finished up Mark chapter 8, and so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and again, chapter 9. That should be on the screen for you to, to follow along, but as we consider where we're at this morning, let me just offer this to you. Where we left the disciples off uh, last week, they just weren't really sure, I believe, what to think. How, honestly, put yourself in their shoes, how could they respond to what Jesus had taught them? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, the thing that will literally kill you, 
and follow Jesus. How could they respond to that? Here they had hopped into this cool car, seemed to be going fast, excitement in the, in the air, music turned up, wind blowing in your hair, sun shining, bright and beautiful, and suddenly the music turns creepy, the clouds roll in, the driver turns and says, I'm heading to Jerusalem where I will suffer and I will die, and oh yeah, if you still want to be my disciple, then you'll have to suffer with me. Talk about a wet blanket, right? What a shift. Likely in their minds, they're still reeling from what Jesus had shared about their soon coming future. Perhaps Peter, even as he's rebuked Jesus last week and was counter-rebuked in front of everybody, maybe even welling up inside of his heart is another rebuke. And he thinks a little better, but still yet, he doesn't know what to do. All this frightening information, wrestling with that, and all the while still hoping that his new nickname doesn't stick if you know what I mean. The disciples, they're still likely thinking, are, are we going to go through with this? Are we going to continue to follow Jesus? Is, is he really for real? Is this one of his like riddle-like parables that we have to like really work hard to understand and maybe it doesn't really mean what he says it's going to mean? I believe as chapter 8 ends, the disciples are asking two questions in the depths of their heart and here's what they're asking. Can we really trust Jesus? Can we really trust him? He's redefined what we believe and what we thought about the Messiah. Can we really trust him? With all due respect, maybe, maybe he's crazy. Maybe, he's, maybe he's, something's, something's, something's loose here up, upstairs. Maybe he's confused. We don't really know, but they're asking, can we really trust Jesus with our lives? And second, I think they're asking this question. If he is the Messiah, how? How can he suffer? How can he suffer? What is so wonderful about the passage that we are going to be tackling this morning is that I think this passage answers those two questions. Can we really trust Jesus? And if he's the Messiah, how can he suffer? And so without any further delay, let's read the text this morning. Mark chapter nine, verses two and following. This is what the word of God says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make Three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. 
Father, this indeed is our prayer, that you would bless the reading in our ears. You, by your spirit, would apply it to our hearts and that your church would be helped. And again, that you would be glorified. We're desperate and dependent on you. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I typically do, I want to offer you uh, some of the front-loading information here. I'm not going to give you one main point this morning. Instead, we'll have two main points, if that can even be done. And the first is this. If you want to write these down, we'll work through these. But if you want to have them, Jesus foretelling is consistent with history. Jesus foretelling is consistent with history. In other words, what Jesus predicted would happen did, in fact, happen. The second point we'll look at this morning is that Jesus' grief is compatible with his glory. That Jesus' grief is compatible with his glory. In fact, his suffering, as we looked at last week, was the path to glory. From these two indicatives that we'll see rising from the text, we will receive two imperatives. And if you want to write those down, you're welcome to do that as well. And they are, we should listen to Jesus and we must suffer with Jesus. And so listen to him and suffer with him. Let's jump into the text and work our way naturally through, uh, starting in verse number two. This is what the Bible says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Well, we covered a little bit of the the high-level view of what's taking place in the Gospel of Mark, but it's been a few months, and so I want to refresh your memory. There's basically three acts. Act number one is Jesus and his disciples with the crowds in Galilee. And so Jesus and his disciples, mainly with the crowds, the attention is on the crowds in Galilee. That's the first act. The second act is this, Jesus with his troubled disciples heading to Jerusalem. Jesus with his troubled disciples heading to Jerusalem. And then there's the third act, and we are still a good ways from that, but it's Jesus in Jerusalem for the week of his passion. So we find ourselves this morning in the middle of number two, Jesus with his troubled disciples heading to Jerusalem. And in that passage, we we see this morning that Jesus with his disciples, he ascends the mountain and they begin uh, to then, uh, they see Jesus in his glory there on the mountain and then they begin to descend from that mountain. And as they descend, it's almost as if it's downhill from that point all the way to the cross of Christ. It's, from, it's downhill in a sense from this mountain that they're on all the way to Jerusalem. So Jesus takes them to the top of the mountain there with his inner circle, which, by the way, some say doesn't exist, but here we see that it does, in fact. And so you can tell your mom about that. But uh, there on that top, there on the mountaintop, the, the key leaders, Jesus' disciples here, the key leaders of the church, they see something that would literally leave some of them speechless. Of course, Peter's not left speechless. But most of them are left speechless. And what does it say about Jesus on top of the mountain? That he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is the Greek word metamorphuo. Yeah, I don't know if I said that right. But I probably did. Uh, at least I got the point across. What does that word sound like? It sounds like that word that we use when we're talking about fuzzy caterpillars, right? It, it really, it means the same thing. The form of Jesus metamorphosized. It, it changed before their very eyes. The, the form of Jesus changed. To see Jesus before this point, 
And at really any point after, leading up to the resurrection, Jesus would have looked as if he was just an ordinary human. It may be shocking to you to know this, but Jesus was not uh, an angelic being of sorts in the sense that he appeared to look that way. There was no halo, there were no wings, and typically his face did not shine, nor did his clothes. But in this instant, his appearance was temporarily changed from that of an ordinary human being to a divine being in all his glory. And what I'm not saying, and what this text is not saying, is that Jesus suddenly was transformed into a divine being. That's not what it's saying, nor is that what I'm saying. Of course, Jesus was always divine. Speaking of the Son of God, the Baptist faith and message, 2000, this is what it says. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Christ is the eternal Son of God, no beginning and no end. In his incarnation and his taking on of flesh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And then he took upon himself a human nature. And so, friends, this morning, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, he took on flesh. He added to himself, he added to his person a human nature at that point he is one person do the math one person with two natures his natures are both divine and human i believe the best way for us to understand what is happening on top of this mountain as we as we read this text is that jesus and his humanity is being peeled back of sorts And his humanity that was concealing, in a sense, his divinity is now fully revealing his divinity. And in that moment, the glory that was hidden, the glory that was veiled in the cloak of humanity allowed the glory of God to rush out. And the full deity of Jesus Christ was seen by his disciples. Again, until this point, his glory had not been revealed this fully, nor would it again till after his resurrection. The transfiguration was the most amazing display of the presence of the kingdom of God in glory and power that ever occurred in the ministry of Jesus again until this point. And these brothers, they got a sneak peek of what that was going to look like. They got a front row seat. Peter, James, and John, there they are. They're watching their rabbi, their Lord be transfigured. And they see his glory. It says in verse three, and his clothes became radiant, immensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Some of you, when you get dressed in the morning, uh, you go and you look in the mirror and you pray that what will come to your mind is something similar to this. What, what Mark is recording here is that no one could get clothes that looked like Jesus, not on this world. It was literally out of this world. Wives, wouldn't you love it if your husband would say that to you? You look this morning like you're dressed out of this world, otherworldly. This is what Mark is saying of Jesus, and it's true. No one on earth could bleach their clothes to make, this, to make their clothes look just like this. And that word radiant, it means exactly what you think it means. 
It's radiating light. It's shining in a sense as the sun. What's interesting, Mark doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' face, nor does Matthew. He only talks about his clothes. But Jesus' face is shining like the sun because we read that in in the Gospel of Luke. It's really interesting when I think about the the shining face of Jesus, I think about the face of Moses as he spends time with God on the top of the mountain. Do you remember that? Maybe you even read it recently this week. It's interesting when the sermon that we'll be preaching, the text that we're looking at on Sunday morning as we work through the gospel of Mark, how that sometimes will line up with our reading throughout the week. And so that that was a treat. When Moses came down from the mountain, what happened to this guy? He was kind of startling. Why? Because his face was glowing. In a sense, his face was reflecting the glory of God. Now, Moses' face, was it the source of light? No. In some sense, yes. I mean, it was glowing from his light. I mean, there was not somebody else shining a light on him there at the base of the mountain. But the glory of God radiating off of his face as he met there with with God's people there at the base of the mountain. What about with Jesus? Is it the same? Is he radiating light as he reflects light or is... He, in fact, the source. Well, if you answered he's the source, then you are correct. The actual glory of God, not reflected off of his face, but emanating from his being, his internal natural glory, bursting forth before their very eyes. They're seeing him in a way that they had never seen him before. Connecting the dots, I think this is a lot of fun. John chapter one, what does John record in his gospel? Verse 14, this is pretty neat. He says, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, we have witnessed much of that glory. And yet we still long for the day where we will see it just as he did. We will behold his glory face to face and we'll know in that moment that this is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John says, I saw his glory. I saw it radiating from himself with my very own eyes. It was unmistakable. Don't you long for that day when you can say with John, I know exactly what it felt like and what what it was like to be there because I am here now in the presence of God. And so the glory of the eternal God is ablaze right before them. And what does it say in verse four? And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. I love this part. They were talking with Jesus. It's interesting that Moses and Elijah are the two men or two men in the Old Testament who who speak with God on the mountain. They're, They're two men that build altars. They're two men that make sacrifices. And there are two men that witness the power of God sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice on their altars. Again, overlapping with our reading this week. And so Elijah and Moses, they're speaking with Jesus. This is interesting. I believe that here that, that Moses represents the law. Now, I'm not saying that Moses wasn't actually there. Of course he was there. But what I'm saying is he represents. He signals to us. Why is he there? Because he, for the Jews and for the Christians, represents the law of God. Now, you might say, well, what is the law of God? Well, for Jews and Christians, historically, this is what we call the law. We call it the the first five books of the Old Testament. We call them the law. And so if you're new to to Christianity, if you're new to this church and you're trying to take notes and soak things up, this would be an easy thing for you. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, those are all comprising what's called the law. 
And I believe that Moses, by the way, Moses wrote the law inspired by, by the Holy Ghost. He, and he, he wrote the law. And what, what about Elijah? Well, he represents, I believe, the prophets. What are, what are, where are the prophets in the Old Testament? Basically, think everything else in the Old Testament. There's 39 books. The first five, the foundation of our, of our Bible, again, both Jewish and Christian. That's the law. And the balance, the, the other 34, comprise essentially the prophets. And so here Moses representing the law of God and Elijah representing Excuse me. And Elijah representing uh, the uh, Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the, the, the prophets, as it were. And so you might say, well, what are they talking about? Here they are on top of the mountain. They're talking with Jesus. They just show up. And what are they talking about? Well, I want you to really try to, to follow me here. This, this might get a little bit uh, dicey in a sense, but I want you to, to stick with me. Moses and Elijah speaking with God there on top of the mountain. The law and the prophets there with God. Even though Matthew and Mark uh, apparently thought it wasn't important to reveal what they talked about, again, there's another book that we're fortunate enough to have that recounts, or recounts rather, what they're talking about. What's the topic of their conversation? Luke, he cues us in. This is what Luke says they're talking about, that they spoke of his departure which we, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure, it's an interesting way to say his death, his departure. Actually, the, the Greek word is literally exodus. They're speaking of his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So remember, that we're in the third or second act, and they're talking, they're on top of that mountain, they're talking about the third act. They're talking about Jesus' death. They're talking about Jesus' burial. They're talking about his resurrection and they're talking about his ascension. Are you catching kind of what's happening here? The law and the prophets, they join Jesus to talk about his passion. Just a few weeks from now, we will celebrate Good Friday. And not long after that, we'll celebrate Easter. And the gospels tell us a story about it, the first Easter, the first, uh, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that two of his disciples were walking along the road and Jesus appeared to them, but they didn't actually recognize him. And they began to tell this stranger all about what had been happening there in Jerusalem. They were down, they were discouraged and they're sharing all this. They're like, where have you been? That's a funny question. And we know the answer to that at that particular time that they ask it. Where are you from? You didn't know about any of this? How does Jesus respond? Luke 24, verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's his opening statement. And then he goes on to preach to them. And what does he do? Beginning with Moses, it says in verse 27, and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. It's very fitting that Jesus at his transfiguration, after he's claimed to be Christ, he's explained what this whole, uh, what, what Messiah actually will do according to Moses and the prophets. Now that he be transfigured on top of the mountain and there in his presence, discussing him with, with him, his passion would be Moses and Elijah. 
It was necessary, it says, according to what? According to the law and according to the prophets. And again, these two things, they comprise what? The Old Testament. As an extension of the previous passage in chapter 8, these verses in chapter 9 continue to develop the idea that Christ, the Son of God, must suffer. That Jesus is the Christ and that he will indeed suffer. Something that Elijah and something that Moses clearly understood. So here the disciples are witnessing this. Kind of a hard shift here, jumping back into the text. It's kind of funny. Have you ever started a sentence and you don't know really where you're going with it? You're nervous, maybe you're even scared. You just start talking. Maybe, maybe you know someone like that. You just start going along, right? That's kind of how Peter reacts here. He, he sees the glory of Jesus unveiled. He sees Moses, which by the way, uh, anybody know, he, he's been long gone, right? He sees Moses. He's been gone a while too. And these two guys are talking with Jesus and he just starts nervously gibbering. And on a serious note, the, the reason fear overcomes Peter is because the glory of God, the manifest presence of God is radiating around him. It's, 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 it's contrasting so greatly with his personal sin, with his weakness. And think back to this past summer as we walked through the gospel-centered life. Do you remember that? As we see more clearly God in his holiness, what happens? We see our sins even more clearly. And the gap that is between the two appears to increase the more and more that we understand the gospel. We're getting a picture of that right here. Peter, as in Isaiah 6, sees the glory of God and he's afraid. On a side note, if you really were to experience the presence of God, if you really were to be able to sense the manifest presence and glory of God, you too would experience fear. In some situations, people fall down. and some, they remain silent. They kneel, but not Peter. Not Peter. What does he do? Well, verse five, let's pick on Peter a bit. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. This is really good. Okay, okay, okay. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In verse six, Mark, he's being kind, good friends with Peter, says, for he didn't really know what to say, for they were terrified. And so Peter's gibbering on. When you hear Peter saying, hey, let's, let's make three tents. Don't, don't hear North Face. Uh, don't think uh, Ozark Trail. Don't be asking like four person or eight person. The, the tents that Peter is talking about are living quarters. These are, these are modern homes for many of those days, right? This is what many people lived in in those days. Peter had a, a plan to build three tents. The, the word actually could mean tabernacle. Peter had a plan to build three tents or tabernacles. Therefore, these three figures or these three beings. And really, in a sense, it continues to, to show Peter's speech continues to show us that he doesn't truly understand Jesus' identity. Why in the world would he build the same kind of thing for all of these guys? He's obviously putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus, the Messiah. That's not to be done. And yet, God is gracious and kind to him. We're continuing to, to watch Peter as he develops and continues to understand, but we still see that he's not comprehending. He's not, he's, not, 
He's not listening even fully. And besides all that, he's missing the point. The, the point of him being on the mountain is not to build a tent. Think about this. Just let you do a little bit of work this morning. What is the purpose of Peter, James, and John being on top of that mountain in that particular moment? Is it to build tents? If you answer no, you are correct. The purpose of Peter being on that mountain is not to protect Moses, Elijah, and Jesus from getting sunburned as they talk up on top of this mountain. That's not the point. It was so Peter could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there's a danger, there's a warning for us this morning as we consider this. There are times for us to work and when those times come, we should work. But there are moments that we as the people of God are to be still and to know. That we're to be still, we're to be quiet and we're to behold the glory of God And this morning for Peter, as we read this, this is one of those times. He is there to see Jesus high and lifted up. And as we gather as the saints of Christ, the saints of God on the Lord's day, we do that this morning. We hope to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and not to work and not to labor, but to be still and to know. Verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Overshadowed, it gives this idea of a being exercising great power over another. It's really a reminder of the Shekinah glory that uh, we read about in the Old Testament that signaled the presence of God and the glory of God. And it's out of that cloud that overshadows them that booms this voice. It's the voice of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. It's interesting, if you think about what's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's very similar to the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember that? We read about it. Mark chapter one, verse 11, this is what it says. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I'm well pleased. This morning, this, this is my son. Listen to him. I think it'd be fair and maybe even wise for us this morning to combine those two and ask, when we ask the question, what is the Father saying to us this morning? He's telling you, listen to my son. It's in him that I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Really, that command, it, it rebukes Peter. God, kind of, God the Father booming from this cloud, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God enveloping them. And his voice says, listen, this voice, the voice of God the Father, listen to him. You think Peter remembers back six days ago when he rebuked Jesus and wouldn't listen to him? Maybe the disciples looked over him. Maybe one whispers over to him, Satan, he called you Satan, right? How did, what did Peter do? Well, he received that rebuke. And here's how I know that he did. Not even going to the end of Mark, but just thinking of Peter's book, the second book that he wrote, First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter, uh, chapter one and verses 16 to 21. This is what the word of God says. Peter, this is his own testimony. For we did not follow clearly the devised miss when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice 
was born to him by the majestic, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter is saying, we didn't make this up. The end of Peter's life demonstrates that he died for something he truly believed in. He's saying by his own hand, we didn't make this stuff up. We watched it. We saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We beheld it. We heard the voice of the Father booming and overshadowing us. So Peter does exactly what Jesus has asked him to do, which we'll get to in a minute. He writes it down. Jesus is after his resurrection. He says, this was the son of God. And if you remember, even Mark, this testimony, this gospel is influenced by Peter's teaching, by Peter's uh, experiences. Look at verse eight. It says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. They had hidden their faces, maybe in their coats, maybe, maybe even dove on the ground as the father was speaking and the cloud was booming. And they opened their eyes. They found that Elijah and Moses and this cloud, they were all gone. Nothing was still there. And Jesus was back to, in a sense, normal. What does it say in nine? As they begin to head down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And of course, Peter does exactly that. You may be remembering on the day of Pentecost, Peter opens his mouth and what does he do? He talks about this. He talks about this. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what his rising from the dead might mean. They had witnessed something quite literally beyond words. What category do they have to put this into? It's really fitting that Jesus wanted them to kind of keep it quiet until the resurrection because they needed a little bit of time to process what had taken place. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that, that helps really me, and I, I believe it will you, to, to understand and to, uh, to, to really color in what we've just read. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is, is telling the children of Israel, he's telling them about the Messiah. And this is what he says. Basically, I, guys, I'm, I'm getting ready to be gone. You know that. The, time of my, the, the end of my life is near. And he says in verse 15, the, the Lord your God, he's gonna raise up a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers, and it is to him you, listen, you shall listen. It's not a coincidence. Moses says there's coming another one. He's gonna be like me in the sense that he's gonna speak for God. In a sense, he'll negotiate with the God's people a new covenant. And when he comes, listen to him. Verse 18, he says, speaking for God, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Is this not Jesus Christ? The fulfillment. Verse 21 of Deuteronomy 18 and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has, has or, the, or the, word that, the word that the Lord has not spoken? 
This is the answer. How do we know if this is a real prophet or not? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This passage helps us to see why Jesus would want them to hold on to this prediction about the resurrection. Why would he want to make it so clear? Why would he want to drop these seeds of prediction before the time had come? Well, because these true facts, that's a thing nowadays, realization of what he was saying and predicting coming true would demonstrate to all those who had ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus was, in fact, God's prophet. He was, in fact, the Messiah, and that they needed to heed or fear his words. And the Father's voice boomed from the cloud. He's saying, remember that passage in Deuteronomy about that prophet that I'm sending? This is him. Hello? Listen up. By the way, if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that we skipped over Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And so if you did... Congratulations. If you didn't know that we skipped over that, then uh, shame on you. You should pay better attention. No. But remember, God is gracious. That's the point that the children are learning this morning, and so I, so I assume that I should be as well. This is what Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and that it has come with power. Well, the reason why we didn't address it last week and I skipped it at the beginning of this week is because it really doesn't fit this week. It's not part of this, even though the chapter divisions, they're not, which by the way, are not inspired, even though it places verse one with our passage this morning, it's actually not part of this passage. Really, it's part of last week's passage. And really, for sake of time, we, we, we didn't address it last week, but we are right now, and why are we doing that? Because Jesus, again, in verse number one of chapter nine, he's making another prediction, that there are some people standing there that will not taste death. They'll not die until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. This was six days ago from the prediction. And what Jesus is saying here in verse one is that despite the fact that he's calling his disciples to come and follow him, to deny themselves, to pick up their cross and to follow Jesus, which would mean to follow them in a sense to their death, he's saying to some of them that it wouldn't happen so soon that they wouldn't see the, the kingdom of God coming with power. Are you following me? So there's very, very in theories as to what does it mean to, that the kingdom of, to see the kingdom of God and coming in power. What does that even mean? Well, there are lots of uh, answers to that question and uh, I'm gonna disappoint you, but I'm not gonna answer that. And the reason why I'm going to do that, there's a couple, but here's the big reason why. Because I think it, it, we can make a point with this. We could say right now, well, I wanna know exactly what, that is, and if it's not true, then I'm not gonna believe it. If I can't understand it, then I'm not going to believe it. And here's what Jesus, the place that Jesus needs to have in our lives, this is the, the place that God is the Father telling us about his son. He's saying, listen to him. And so if you stand over and against the promises of God and the prophecies of Christ, and you say, when I see it take place, then I'll believe it. When I understand it, I know all the nitty-gritty details, and I can exegete it and apply it, then, then I'll believe. Only then, if logically I understand and intellectually I can affirm. And that's not what we're called to do. And so maybe this morning you're thinking, wait a minute. 
might have Jesus in an arm bar right here. If that didn't take place, then we've got him. We can do whatever we say. We can do whatever we want. Let me ask you this this morning. Is the jury of your heart still out on Jesus? Or is your default position to say, the words of God from the mouth of Christ are true and they're worthy of my faith and submission regardless of my understanding. Now, I don't want to overstate this point. I don't want to say that we shouldn't try to understand these. I think there are easy and, 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 and uh, acceptable explanations for what that means and when it, uh, when, when it took place. Message me. Let's talk after the service. But the point is this. We cannot stand over and against God and say, I'll listen to him when I have all the pieces and when I have all the facts. It's really against the point of this sermon. It's, the, it's the, against the point of this message. God the Father booming from heaven, overshadowing the leaders of our church in that day, saying, listen to him. And so perhaps you're still trying to decide this morning if you can believe in Jesus. Would you hear the words of the Father? Listen to him. This text this morning, it shows us about Jesus that his glory revealed on the mountain points to his messiahship. It points to the fact that he is the son of God. Furthermore, his father's own testimony clearly determines that for us. And finally, his true predictions that we've witnessed. And after the fact, we can look back and say that we know that all of those things that Jesus was saying would take place, specifically this morning about his death, that all came true. And so we can know from, from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that this is God's Messiah and that we must listen to him. All of these truths, they point to that. They lift that up. That's what I have for you this morning. That's what this text has for you this morning, that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Do you remember the imperatives that I mentioned at the beginning? We had some indicatives. The first one was that Jesus' foretelling is consistent with history. And the imperative then is that we must listen to him. And so I want to just push this out to you this morning. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to Jesus? Peter had a choice. I think largely this, the words of the father were for Peter. Listen. But they're for you this morning as well. Will you listen? Jesus' foretelling is consistent with history, proving according to Deuteronomy chapter 18 that we should listen to him. But let's keep moving through the text. Verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, let me just say this. The the noun scribe originally referred to copyists, those who would copy text of scripture. They didn't have printer paper. They didn't have uh, uh, printers. They didn't have HP and ink and refills and all that stuff. They had scribes. And these guys that spent the most time copying the word of God, making copies and passing it along to other groups of believers around the world, uh, these scribes, it, it makes sense that they became the most familiar with the word of God. But in New Testament times, it's, this word scribe is specifically designated to scholars, scholars it's a it's a it's a it's a position of power it's a position of authority biblically and they're interpreters of the law and they expound on the traditions of judaism 
And apparently there was this consensus among these scribes that the Messiah, the Christ, would be preceded by the coming of Elijah. And, and that's found, we've already looked at that, that's found in the book of Malachi. We talked about that in the past week. But in verse 12 it says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 12 is kind of summing up some points here. Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right. Elijah is coming to restore all things. That's number one. But there's another piece of information that I want you to keep bear in mind, and that is this, that the Son of Man will, in fact, suffer. Elijah does come first. He's coming. He's going to restore all things. But the other point is true, that the Son of Man will suffer. Well, the scribes, they were thinking that this Elijah coming to restore all things was still a future event. And we know that in a way, Elijah had already come in the form of John the Baptist. The spirit of Elijah was, was on John the Baptist. And he had brought about really the, the spiritual restoration of the people of God in a sense. He had come preaching repentance. He had come preaching faith. And remember, at this point in time, what does it say? What does Mark record? That, that all of Jerusalem, what were they doing? All of Judea, what were they doing? They were coming out to be baptized. They were coming down to the River Jordan to hear the message of John the Baptist. This message of repentance, of restoration. And so Jesus says in verse 13, these two things are happening. The, the prophet Elijah is coming and the son of man will suffer. And this is what he says of those two things. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What Jesus is saying is this. Elijah, like John the Baptist, he spoke courageously to the evil leaders of that day and they wanted them dead. And so Elijah did that to Jezebel. She wanted him dead. And John the Baptist did that to, to Herod, to Rhodius. And guess what? They wanted him dead. And what does it say? They did to Elijah whatever they pleased. And the idea is that they wanted to kill Elijah. And I don't know if you know the story, but they were unable to. God protected him sovereignly by his hand. And he was spared. The thing that they pleased to do to Elijah, guess what they finally, evil leaders of the day, guess what they finally got to do? They finally got to kill John. They snuffed his life out. They shut his mouth up in a sense, didn't they? And Jesus is saying, that's already taken place. We're looking for two things, guys. We're looking for the return of, of, of Elijah. And we're looking for the son of man to suffer. And guess what? One of them's already happened. We're just waiting for the second. He's saying, boys, it's going to happen. The son of man will suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. So Jesus' message leading into the transfiguration, he's going to suffer. The son of man's going to suffer. His message is that his suffering is not incompatible with his glory. No, on the contrary, suffering, as we saw last week and we see again this week, that suffering is the path to glory from God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. There's no other path to glory. This is what we hear from Moses 
In a sense, this is what we hear from Elijah. We hear it from John. We see it from him as well. We hear it from Peter. We know what happened to him. We hear it from the Father. And so yet we hear it from our Lord Jesus. That suffering is not incompatible with glory, but it is the path to glory. And is the path that the Father had to turn the Son take. Jesus' words are sure. There will be suffering. My question to you this morning is this. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer and endure grief on the path to glory? And what is that suffering that you will endure? Will we literally face our own cross? Likely not. Not in a figurative sense. And yet each and every one of us, as we deny ourselves, as we take up our cross, and as we continue to follow Jesus, we will partake in his suffering. It's fitting, again, that we read from Peter. This time, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse number 12. Beloved, saints, church, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's saying, Church, don't be shocked when you suffer. It's coming. It's promised. But when you suffer, rejoice insofar as you are then able to share. You're invited in to share in Christ's sufferings. That you may be able to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When he returns. When you see his glory face to face. As Peter, James, and John did there on that mountain. And verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I wish we had the time to unpack that text. I just really want to assign it to you this morning. Spend some time meditating on that this week. First Peter chapter four, verses 12 to 19. For now, know this, that the grief that you're experiencing right now is accomplishing something. The pain that you experience right now, it's accomplishing something. As you endure, God is working. Furthermore, there is something set before us. And what is that? It is the very glory of God. God is using the suffering. He's using the heartache. He's using the loss. He's using the confusion to shape and to fashion you so that you'll be prepared to see God in glory. It's a position of faith that we're called to take, to listen to God as he speaks of the Son, God the Son. And he says, that Son, that second person of the Trinity says that suffering is the path to glory. And what does he do? He says, in the meantime, entrust your soul to your faithful creator and do good. And so what should you do this morning What is one action step? Well, we need not work hard 
to preach this. Peter simply says, entrust your soul to your faithful creator and do good. Hagerstown Church, Jesus is foretelling it's consistent with history. And it demonstrates for us that we should listen to him. And Jesus' grief is compatible with his glory. And so let's follow him and suffer with him. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. And we love the fact that your testimony about your son was recorded for our reading this morning. As we read your words, may we hear them in the depths of our soul that you desire that we listen to Christ. And that in the sense of Deuteronomy 18, that we would fear him, that our reverence that we have for you would be extended to him as he stands over us even now, that we would repent of our pride and foolishness as we consider as to whether or not we should or can believe, but that we would submit in faith. And that in that moment of humility and submission that you would teach us. Furthermore, Father, as we wrestle just as Peter did with this idea of suffering, with our preconceived idea that it's incompatible with glory, would you call us to repent of that? Would you call us, as Jesus said in Mark 8, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow you. Father, it's the heart of this pastor for this church, for your people, that we would do just that in the coming weeks and the years to come. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.